If you would, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 12, verses 1 through 12. That's page 848 in the Bibles that are there in the chairs. <clears throat> you know, I heard uh, a pastor recently say that, that the message of the Bible in some ways is very, very simple. It's basically a record of here's what God has done and here's what he's going to do. And then it asks the question, do you believe it? And do you cherish it? That's a pretty good description. The Bible, at its core, is a story. It's a story of God's interaction with mankind within history. Right? God has been doing something throughout the course of history, and God is not done yet. He still has things to do. Right? That's what the Bible tells us. He's leading it somewhere. But this is a story that calls for a response, right? We can't just sit and read the story like we're not part of it. It calls us to engage with it and ask a few questions of ourselves, right? It's not just a response of the head. Do I know what the story is? But it's one of the will. Do I affirm this, right? Do I act differently as a result of this story? And it begs the question of our hearts. Do you love this? Do you cherish it? Do you want this? Are you transformed by this? Do you set your hope and your affections on this story? At its most basic level, the Bible is a story about how God has worked, about how God is working, and about how God will complete His mission to restore and reconcile a rebellious people who have sinned against him to himself through the through his son through the savior jesus christ save them ultimately not from some arbitrary rules that they happen to break but really saving them from themselves this is the big picture of the bible right this is the meta narrative of scripture this is the history of redemption right in the bible god is telling us his story and you're all part of it. Everyone in this room has some part to play in that story. However small, however insignificant, you have a part to play in that story, either for good or for ill. Right? God's narrative is still unfolding, and you are part of it, whether you are a believer or an unbeliever. This study of redemptive history, this meta-narrative of Scripture, this study of this story is called biblical theology. Okay, A biblical theologian, what he does is he traces themes throughout the story of the Bible to see what is the entire Bible, what does God have to say through his entire message, through his entire story of this issue, of this theme. Right? That's what a biblical theologian does. And and why that's significant is because this morning we see that Jesus is playing the role of biblical theologian. Okay, he's been dealing with these wicked leaders for three years now. right? He's, he's been interacting with them. We just looked at it last week. And now Jesus is giving us basically God's story of wicked leadership. Right? He's, he's laying it out, giving us a concise biblical theology of wicked leadership. He wants us to see that, and he does it by telling a parable, by telling a story. But in that story, there's a larger story that's unfolding within. You see, though God has placed these wicked leaders in their positions, and they will kill Jesus, the Son of God, they will be rightly judged by God for it. 
They're acting on their heart's desire. And this is part of God's plan. This is part of God's story. This is how he decided to let it unfold, that the wicked actions of these men in these positions of power, that they see to it that Jesus is killed, and as a result, God would judge them for it. This is all part of God's storyline. Okay? The story Jesus tells us is a prediction of these men's result within the unfolding plan of God. Okay, so at its core, the parable of tenants that we're going to look at today in Mark chapter 12, verses 1 through 12, is a story about the story. And I want us to see that today. The actions and coming judgment of these wicked leaders are part of God's unfolding plan of redemption through the sacrifice of his son. So please turn with me, if you haven't already, to Mark chapter 12. Again, it's page 848 in the Bibles there in the chairs. It says, And Jesus began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant. And they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and they killed him. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner do of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them. So they left him and went away. Now I'm going to break this passage down into three sections. The first one, which is typical of me, is the longest. Verses 1 through 9 forms a story, the story. Okay, We're going to look at that. Then in in verses 10 through 11, we see that Jesus provides scriptural proof that he is the fulfillment of God's story. And then in verse 12, we see that these wicked, we see the response of these wicked leaders to Jesus. Okay, So first, let's look at the story. Now remember... This parable follows right on the heels of chapter 11, verses 27 through 33. And there we saw last week that Jesus approached the temple once again. This is Tuesday of the Passion Week. This is the third day that he's entered into Jerusalem, third day that he's gone into the temple. First two times he stirred things up, and now he's coming there again. And he was confronted by these men who are members of the Sanhedrin, right? the ruling council of Israel. These men are comprised of priests and scribes and elders, right? Now, on the surface, they sound like pretty good guys. I mean, if you look at their names, hey, they're priests, they're scribes, they're elders. They're not too bad, right? But that's only if you haven't read the rest of Mark. If you read the rest of Mark, you realize that these guys constantly question Jesus' authority. They doubted who he was. They, they questioned him constantly. They've already they've accused Jesus of blasphemy. They said that he was Satan, 
And Jesus turns around and said, hey, listen, they worship themselves only, right? They're only concerned about their positions and their own authority. Jesus even calls them robbers, right? We see that throughout the course of Mark that these men have proved themselves time and time again to be hard-hearted and unbelieving. And so they come to Jesus and they ask a question. They demand a response, right? They said, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? But like last week, we saw that Jesus turns it on him, doesn't he? Anytime some, some inquisitor comes and tries to accuse Jesus of something, he always turns it back on him, right? He ends up asking them a question. Say, listen, you tell me. John the Baptist's ministry, is it from heaven or from man? Right? And they balked at that question. They balked because of their unbelief. They balked because they were afraid of the people. They didn't care about who John the Baptist was. They didn't care about Jesus. They only cared about themselves. And so Jesus didn't answer their question. This, today, is a continuation of that conversation. Okay? Chapter 12, verse 1, picks up in that conversation. Verse 1 says, And he began to speak to them in parables. Well, who is the them in this verse? Well, clearly from context, it's the scribes, the priests, and the elders that had asked him the question. It's these wicked leaders. And so this parable is a response to their question. But it's not an answer. Jesus is not intending to outright answer their question. So it is a response to their question, but it's not an answer to their question. Jesus is not just throwing them a bone here after he just said that he's, he wasn't going to answer them. No, Jesus is doing this actually to bring further condemnation on them. You see, we learn about that when we think about parables. Mark rarely uses parables. He rarely tells these, these stories, these sayings that Jesus has. But when he does, they're really, really significant. The only one we've seen, that we, uh, the ones that we've seen before this are way back in chapter 4. You have to go way back there. But Jesus explains to us why he teaches in parables. Parables are short stories with two parallel meanings, two parallel levels of meanings. There's this straightforward meaning of the story itself. It, it uses all sorts of imagery that's common to that day, and the people could listen to it, and they could understand the story that's going on, right? They could understand, at least at some measure, what's happening in face value. But underneath of that, there's a deeper level of meaning, okay? And that's something that he reveals only to his disciples or the gospel writer, in this case Mark, reveals to his readers. For those outside, for those who aren't disciples of Jesus, like these wicked leaders, they might be able to understand some of Jesus' message, but ultimately his message is only given to those who follow him. And Mark has already told us the purpose behind the parables. In chapter 4, verses 10 through 13, it says, and when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables. And he said to them, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, everything is in parables so that they may indeed see but not perceive and may indeed hear but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. Jesus gives the deeper meaning, the secrets of the kingdom of God to his disciples, to those who are following him, to those who ask. But for those on the outside, we see that it only wells up to condemnation and judgment. He tells this story to bring further condemnation upon them. 
So the parable was not given to these leaders so to answer outright their questions, but rather to bring further condemnation upon them. Now, I have to say that parables are not allegories. Okay, It's not the same thing. They are kind of similar in some ways, but they're different. We can't read them as like... Everything has a one-for-one correspondence. So like if you read commentators on this, they get kind of hot and heavy on what does this mean, and what does that mean, and what does this mean. Don't read this like you read Chronicles of Narnia, okay? You can't read it that way. There's not always a one-for-one correspondence, okay? Parables typically have one main point, and then they may have additional sub-points. And the longer the parables are, the more complex they get. This is one of the longer parables that we have, and so it's a more complex example. So it's got a main point, and it's got some other things that you can draw connections to. And just to make things easy, I'm just going to tell you what the main point is, okay? The main point is this. Those who God has placed in positions to care for his people have rejected him and his son, thus bringing God's righteous judgment upon themselves. That's the meaning of the parable, right? That's what Jesus is getting at. Okay, let me say that again for you note takers. See you out there. Right. Those who God has placed in positions to care for his people, like these wicked leaders, they've rejected him and his son. And so they've wrought God's righteous judgment upon themselves. Okay. The truth is this parable might be better titled the parable of the rejected son rather than the parable of the wicked tenants. But what's fascinating about this parable is how it follows the meta-narrative of the Bible, right? A simple storyline, creation, fall, redemption, and consummation, okay? And we're going to walk through this so you guys can see it, all right? We see creation in verse 1. It says, A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower. Now, the parallel meaning to this story is that uh, that man represents God. We see that this man is building. He is creating. He is showing care. He is lovingly creating detail. He's heavily investing in this vineyard. Vineyards aren't that nice in Jesus' day, right? He's spent a lot of time and energy on it. Now, a vineyard, the vineyard is a common Old Testament image that represents Israel, Right? This happens throughout the Old Testament. We see that Israel is called the vineyard. And we're not allegorizing here about the man or the vineyard because, again, Jesus is drawing off of a common Old Testament description. So keep your finger right there and flip over to Isaiah chapter 5, verses 1 through 7. I want you to see this. Isaiah 5, 1 through 7. Now I want you to listen carefully for some of these Images as they come up. It says, Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there for me to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it shall be devoured. 
I will break down its wall and trample, and it will be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed, and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. For the vineyards of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. He looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. Did you see the connections there? Did you see them? In verse 1, there's a vineyard, right? In in verse 2, there's a watchtower and a wine vat. In verse 5, there's the wall. And in verse 7, it's pretty clear, right? That the vineyard belongs to the Lord. It is the house of Israel. More appropriately, it is the people of God. Okay? So again, Jesus is using common Old Testament image of vineyard of the Lord in this parable. And these religious leaders who he's speaking to, they should have caught that. They should have understood it. Okay? In redemptive history, we see that a perfectly holy God created everything to be enjoyed. Created everything so that it might have fellowship with Him. He created everything for a purpose that they might reveal His glory. Mankind was created to know and to enjoy and to glorify God. That is why they are here. That is why you are here. But Isaiah 5 tips us off to the next part of the story. God created everything to be enjoyed, but man rebelled against God. The second part of the story is the fall. So we've got creation, now we have fall. Isaiah tells us that the vineyard yielded wild grapes. Right? They are bad grapes that can't be used for their intended purposes. Though he planted the choicest of vines, right? those that should have yielded the most fruit, what he got instead were useless wild grapes. Good for nothing. And it rendered the vineyard completely useless. Now moving back to Jesus' parable. We see that the owner had leased the vineyard to tenants and left the country. Okay, again, there's not a one-for-one correspondence in everything. This could be that maybe leaving the country is supposed to refer to the separation between God and man uh, as a result of the fall. Maybe not. We don't know. But we do know that in redemptive history, man's disobedience has caused a separation between God and man. That intimacy, that unity, that, that connection, that nearness that they had when they were in the garden was severed because of man's sin, because of man's disobedience. Man rejected God. Man wanted to be like God. Man didn't want to obey God. And as a result, they brought themselves under God's just judgment. They had to be separated from Him. He was too holy, too just, too righteous to be near them. Okay? That separation occurred. But you know, in His mercy, God still pursued them. And as you follow the storyline of the Bible, you see that God continued to interact within history with His people. God continued. He gave them His law. He rescued them from, from, uh, from slavery. He, he established a, a form of worship so they can know how they could draw near to Him. He established priests and, and religious leaders to be able to guide them towards himself. And these guides, these leaders, can be seen in the tenants. The tenants in Jesus' parable represent these wicked religious leaders. How do we know? Well, Mark flat out tells us. We don't have to guess on this. Look at verse 12, right? 
And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them. Right? They know it's about them. They get it. Mark gives us the clue to understand the meaning of this parable. The religious leaders understood that Jesus was talking about them, and they didn't like it. Okay? In the story, again, just thinking about the story that Jesus is telling itself, the tenants in this story, everybody would have understood that the tenants would have known the agreement they had with the owner, right? Okay? They would have understood that this is not really their vineyard, that it belongs to the owner, that they are ultimately under his authority. And that when that owner returns, as would be part of the agreement, they would have to give an account for their treatment of that vineyard, and they would have to give him some of the fruit. That was the agreement. Everybody understood this. Anybody listening to this parable in Jesus' day would have known that intuitively. Right? They have the law. They know the commands. They, they understood the agreement. Right? <clears throat> this... So then let's pick up here in in verse 2. When the season came, the owner sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And again he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and they killed him. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. Now, this is one of the clues that Jesus is doing a little biblical theology here, okay? Think about the context. These, he's approached by these elders, these scribes, these priests. Did they kill anybody? No. Did they beat anybody, treat them shamefully? No. The only other prophet that we've seen so far, Jesus is still kicking it, the only prophet that we've seen so far is John the Baptist, and he was killed by Herod. And so this, if we're just looking at this story, it doesn't apply to them unless Jesus is thinking more categorically. And th- unless he's thinking on a larger scale, okay? Unless he's looking at the storyline, the course of redemptive history, unless he's understanding their hearts and seeing their hearts are no different than those that came before them and those that came before them and those that came before them. And those people did beat and those people did kill God's servants. You see what he's doing here? Jesus is doing biblical theology. Okay? Throughout the course of history, wicked men have beaten and killed God's faithful servants. Think about the first worship service that we have recorded in Genesis 4 ends with Cain killing Abel. That's the first worship service, and it doesn't get any better. It's amazing how people who claim to be the people of God actually kill God's servants. Now, the Bible says tons about this. I'm just going to give you a few illustrations throughout Scripture so you can see how this is presented across the timeline. Okay? Elijah says in 1 Kings 19, verse 10, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant. They have thrown down your altars. They have killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only am left, and they seek my life to take it away. Then God says in Jeremiah 7, verses 25 and 26, listen to this. He says, from the day that your your fathers came out of the land of Egypt to this day, I have persistently sent all my servants, the prophets, to them, day after day. 
Yet they did not listen to me or incline their ear, but stiffened their neck. They did worse than their fathers. And you see that Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel, they all have specific words of condemnation upon the religious leaders of the day who are fattening themselves at the sake of everyone else. They're selfish. They're concerned about their power. They do not care about God. Nehemiah 9.26 Nevertheless, they were disobedient and rebelled against you and cast the law behind their back. And they killed your prophets who warned them in order to turn them back to you. And they committed great blasphemies. 2 Chronicles 36.14-16 All of the officers of the priests and the people likewise were exceedingly unfaithful, following all the abominations of the nations. And they polluted the house of the Lord that He had made holy in Jerusalem. The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent persistently to them His messengers because He had compassion on His people and on His dwelling place. But they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising His words and scoffing at His prophets until the wrath of the Lord rose against His people until there was no remedy. Then Jesus said in Matthew 23, verse 37, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, a city that kills its prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood, but you would not have it. And we could keep going. Read Acts 7. Read Romans 11. Read 1 Thessalonians 2. Read Hebrews 11. It is clear that throughout Scripture, mankind is fallen and seeks to live life without God, not to seek for Him. Okay? Mankind is not really seeking for God. Mankind is seeking for a God, not God. I need to be clear on that. Because if you understand all of redemptive history, you'll get what one commentator rightly said. What is the sum total of history if not the attempt to rid the universe of God? We think about that. What we do is we look for a God that we want, a God that we can control, a God that we can abuse and, and make him bow down to our own wills. We want a God in reality that is us. That's what we want. That's what we seek after. Ultimately, we're seeking to make ourselves God. And when we can't find it, we seek to destroy or mar God's name or turn Him into an image that we want. And that's what we've seen in these religious leaders. That's what they're doing. And that's what you and I do. That's human nature. The reality is, we want to live as if this is my world and I'm God. Fortunately for us, that's not where the story ends, right? Yay, God. You know? I mean, so, uh, it's not the end of God's story, and it's not the end of Jesus' parable. Okay, So we've got creation, we've got fall, now we're moving on to redemption. I mean, praise God that God moves His story from fall to redemption. And you can see it in verses 6 through 8. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, He sent him to them, saying, They will respect My son. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. Now, I don't know about you, but when I came to this, you know, reading this story, you, you kind of ought to be asking yourself, what's up with this owner, right? 
Like, how many servants did you just send? And every one of them was like either beaten or killed. Like, why are you sending your son? This doesn't make sense. Like, who does that? Well, there's two answers to that question. One who is compassionate and one who has an ultimate purpose behind it. And we learn both of those things in this parable. The owner sends his beloved son as a display of his compassion and patience towards these wicked tenants. How often does Scripture echo the refrain of Exodus 34, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. I mean, how often do we see that played out in Scripture over and over and over and over again? That God continues to send His servants in order to display His own compassion towards them. God sent His beloved Son. I mean, this is a word that recalls Abraham's love for Isaac, Jacob's love for Joseph, God's love for Israel, and the Father's love for Jesus. We've seen it twice in Mark. Once at Jesus' baptism. When God thunders down from heaven, behold, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And we saw it again at the transfiguration in chapter 9. Behold, this is my beloved Son. Listen to Him. In the parable, the Son is sent to reconcile the tenants to the owner. That's what He's coming to do. That's His job. Do you realize that? He's going to reconcile these tenants to the owner. But not everybody is going to receive it, right? We see that they rejected him. In the parable, they must have thought that the owner was dead, right? And so they could kill the son, and if they killed the son, then the inheritance would be theirs. But if humanity can dispense with God or even kill God, then humanity can be God. But, though God is compassionate, He's not impotent. He's not powerless, is He? Alright? They couldn't have known that they were actually playing into His hand. See, redemption requires more than just compassion and more than just redirection. Redemption requires a payment. A debt must be paid. It requires a blood sacrifice to pay that debt. The son's death was that necessary sacrifice. In killing the son, these wicked tenants are actually playing their part in God's ultimate plan in His story of redemption. That before the foundation of the world, God had determined through the death of Jesus Christ on the cross and His resurrection from the dead, that He would eternally reconcile sinful men to Himself. They had no idea that they were playing straight into it, but they were. And that leads to the last part of God's story. You've got creation, you've got fall, redemption, and you have consummation. The story is still going somewhere. There's an ultimate purpose. There's an ultimate end. Consummation means fulfillment. It means completion. It carries the idea of victory and triumph and bringing things to an end and bringing things to completion. That's what that word means. 
In the end, God will reconcile all things to himself. All things. Either by perfecting them to live with ever, live with him forever through faith in Jesus Christ or by judging them for all eternity. We often forget that that's part of consummation. Right? Judgment is part of consummation. We can see it in verse 9. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. He will judge these wicked tenants and give the vineyard to those who will be faithful. Consummation will bring eternal blessing and fellowship for those who have repented of their sin and followed after Jesus, but it means eternal judgment for those who have rejected Him. God will indeed punish the wicked tenants. This is a prediction. This is Jesus' prediction of judgment upon the Sanhedrin. And even though they can't understand the full meaning of the parable, they recognize in the story that the owner is just to destroy the tenants. Everybody gets that. Everybody is able to look at that, and they're able to say, yeah, yeah, he's right. I mean, they have killed his servants. They have killed his son. They have refused to pay him what he is owed. They deserve that judgment. They get that. And in verse 12 we see, they get that Jesus was speaking about them. That is amazing. So they know that judgment is just. They know that he's speaking against him. I mean, it's unbelievable. But they still continue on. Right? It's like nothing ever happened. And here's the thing. Ultimately, whether you like it or not, whether you recognize it or not, whether you want to believe it or not, deep down we all know that God's judgment upon the righteous and the unrighteous will be just. We know it. We might want to argue the unfairness of an eternity in hell, but deep down we know God is right. We do. These guys are proof of that. They understand that He's just. They just don't care. And so you see, there's a whole lot of truth that is packed into Jesus' parable. It is a story of a larger story of God's work of redemption through His Son. Right? Creation, fall, redemption, consummation. And this is a story that we're all part of. So that's the story. Second, verses 10 through 11, we see that Jesus connects the dot to show that He is the fulfillment. Okay? Jesus has already proven himself time and time again. He has already, even in this account, used all sorts of Old Testament imagery so that they can get it, so that these religious leaders should have picked up on it, but now he's going to throw down the gauntlet. He is going to make it absolutely clear to them. He is going to leave no doubt. Look at verse 10. Have you not read this scripture? Well, of course they have, right? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Okay, If they missed the connections so far in the story, they couldn't possibly have missed this one. You see, this is Psalm 118. This is a messianic psalm. This is a song that predicts the coming of the Christ, the Redeemer, the one who would deliver His people from their oppression. Okay, 
these people would have held to this one dearly. They would have sang it just a couple of days ago as they marched up the hill towards Jerusalem. These guys would have taught on it. They would have hoped in it. They were waiting for it. And this was also that was song that was sung about Jesus as he entered into Jerusalem. Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But they couldn't see it. And they couldn't see it because they didn't read the psalm right. They weren't careful in their hermeneutic, right? They had a poor interpretation. They had mistakenly taken that cornerstone that was rejected. They thought that was Israel. Right? They thought they were the cornerstone. And then a few verses later, the one who comes in the name of the Lord, they thought that was the Messiah. Right? But Jesus says, no. No, no, no. The cornerstone is the Messiah. They're one and the same. Right? The one that is rejected, that's the Christ. The Messiah is the cornerstone. This Christ would be rejected. And there's the fulfillment of the parable and the psalm. The cornerstone is the rejected Messiah. The son is rejected by the tenants. Jesus is rejected by these religious leaders. Jesus is the son. Jesus is the cornerstone. Jesus is the Christ. You are the tenants. You are the builders. You reject him. And there it is. Could you imagine being on the receiving end of this? Right? Could you imagine... Put yourself in the position of one of these elders, one of these priests, one of these scribes. And Jesus has just brought this down on you. And you know that you're one of these tenets that he's speaking about. And you know the judgment in that parable is fair. Okay? If you put yourself there, you realize that you are there. That's not just their position, that that's actually yours. Do you get that? Do you understand that? Do you feel the weight of that? Okay? We're going to talk about that more in a moment. Hold that thought, though. Okay? Jesus has just reworked your paradigm. He shattered your hermeneutic. You are not Israel. You are not God's people. You are not the rejected cornerstone. You are the builders who reject the cornerstone. And now read verse 11. Okay? This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Well, it changes everything, doesn't it? changes the way you read that passage. If you're one of these scribes, you're one of these elders, you're, you're like, it's just blown you away. Because he has just said, listen, the fulfillment of this is that I'm the rejected cornerstone, you have rejected me, and this was God's doing. It's glorious. You're going to be judged. <laughs> it's unbelievable. Jesus is saying here, it was God's plan for me to ride into Jerusalem to the sounds and the shouts and the singing of Hosanna. It was the Lord's plan for me to overthrow the temple, to, to condemn it and its worship practices. It was part of God's story for you to reject the cornerstone. And it is marvelous in our eyes. Marvelous, wonderful, amazing, 
Unbelievable. That's what he's saying. The son that you reject and kill will be raised from the grave. And he will be the authority. He will be the Savior. He will be the Redeemer. He will be the new temple. He will be the very locus of salvation. He will be vindicated and it will be glorious. The religious leaders are right in that they are in the middle of God's story of redemption. The problem is they saw themselves on the wrong side. They didn't get it. But it doesn't change anything. God's amazingly glorious plan is perfectly upheld through the rejection of His one and only Son. Jesus fulfills God's story. And it's one that we're all a part of. So third, this story calls for a response. In verse 12, we see the response of these wicked leaders. Right? We see how they respond to Jesus in his parable. It says that they were seeking to arrest him, but they feared the people, for they perceived that he told this parable against them, so they left him and went away. All right? So what did they do? You know, as Jesus told the parable, they were cut to the heart because they realized how they had rejected the Son. They had rejected the Christ. They had rejected the Messiah, right? And so they, they wept and they repented of their sin and they believed in Jesus, right? No, that's not what they did. They hardened their hearts against him, though they perceived that he had told this parable against them, meaning that they understood at some level that they were the wicked tenants in the story under the just judgment of the owner, who is God. They did not repent. Instead, they hated it, and they wanted to get rid of it. They hardened their hearts against him, and they sought to arrest him. You see how this fulfills Mark 4? They saw but did not perceive and heard but did not understand lest they should turn and be forgiven. The reality is they didn't want the truth. They wanted to arrest the truth. And what an illustration of the depth of our own rebellion against God. They perceived that this parable was against them, right? But still, They rejected Him. And the only thing that stopped them was the fear of displeasing the people. And it's the same thing we saw in verse 18. It's the same thing that we saw in verse 32 of chapter 11. They didn't fear God, only the people. They didn't want to please God, only the crowd. And though they didn't do it then, they would ultimately accomplish their goal in seeing to Jesus' arrest, and they would watch as the one that they had rejected, the cornerstone was crucified. At its core, this is a parable of prediction, right? Those who God has placed in position to care for His people have rejected Him and His Son, thus bringing God's righteous judgment upon themselves. That's why Jesus tells this parable. That is what it's all about. But we need to be careful here that we do not just dismiss this because we think it has nothing to do with us. Right? That, that was about them. That's not about us. Right? That was then, way, th- way over there, a long time ago. That's not about us. We just need to disregard this. 
Because so often that's what we do when we come to Scripture. We read it like it's a story that happened, like, I don't know, like, like the Lord of the Rings, you know? Like, it's just kind of almost out there, sort of, yeah, maybe, I don't know, kind of mythy, maybe kind of grounded in history, I don't, I don't really know, right? We treat it like, like, really like historical fiction is what we treat it like. I mean, let's be honest, we do. And we don't see ourselves as being a part of it. That's why I frame this sermon in terms of the storyline of the Bible. In terms of creation, fall, redemption, consummation. So that you can see that without a doubt, you are part of the story. Right? You're in it. It's still unfolding. It's still going on. You have a part to play in it. And the part you don't get to pick as being, I want to be the owner. I want to be one of the servants. I want to be the son. No, in this, in this story, you play a tenant. The reality is every one of us have been in that position. And if you do not see yourself as having been in that position or being in that position, then you have deceived yourself. We're all there. We have all willfully placed ourselves under the just wrath of God. We have all tried to live our lives without Him. We've all tried to live as if this is my world and I am God. And I hope that you get that. I hope you can't miss it. I hope it's clear from the storyline of creation, fall, redemption, and consummation. So what? You're not a priest or a scribe or an elder. You have all rejected God. You have all rebelled against Him in thought and word and deed and tried to live without Him. Tried to live as if this is your world and you are God. You've taken the very gifts that He has given you and then you've turned them to use them against Him. You've all done it. We've all played the tenant in this parable. Really, the question is, are you going to continue to harden your hearts against Him? Are you going to continue to reject the Son? Will you bring the just wrath of God upon yourselves because you have refused His authority? Now, don't dismiss yourself because you're a religious person. Because these guys were the most religious people there were. These guys understood the Word of God better than anybody in Jesus' day, aside from Jesus and aside from maybe John the Baptist. So you can't dismiss it because you're here. You can't dismiss it just because you made a profession of faith, that you did an act. You know, If you're placing your faith in the fact that you grew up in a Christian home and you have taken the Lord's Supper and you've done all of these things, then you're missing the points. The reality is you've got to put yourself there. Man, I am a tenant. And the only thing I can do is rather than continue to reject the Son is I need to accept Him. I need to hope in Him. I need to believe in Him. I'm going to rest in who He is. God is so compassionate that despite our continual rejection of Him, He continues to send His servants to point us towards the truth. He has given us His Word. Guys, you think that we're going to be okay because, I don't know, you, we can't claim ignorance, right? Every one of you, I bet, has one of these, or multiples, right? We have more Christian literature at our fingertips than any other generation has ever dreamed of having. Okay? You're going to be held culpable for that. Are you going to continue to ignore those things? He's holding out the opportunity. 
to cancel out that debt through the death of his son, are you going to continue to reject him? The reality is that hope, that promise, that that opportunity, it's not going to last forever. He will come and he will judge it. And are you going to continue to be on the wrong side? Are you going to continue to fear man more than you fear God? Are you going to continue to take those gifts of God and, and use them against Him? Or say, you know what, even though you've given them to me, this is mine. I'm taking it. You can't have it. Or will you give Him what He's owed? Will you give Him what He deserves? Which is your entire life. This parable of the wicked tenants is an abridgment of a bigger story that is continuing to unfold. And like it or not, you're part of it. Whether you're a believer or an unbeliever, you're part of it. And it will fulfill its end. Look at what God has done. Look at what He's going to do. And ask yourself the question, do I believe that? And do I cherish it? Let's pray together. Father God, we, I, I just pray that we would not just skip over the truth of what's happening here. That whether we see it or not, we are part of your story. That you have included us because you have created us. Because we are fallen in need of redemption. And for some, it's because you have saved us. Be, Because that's the case, then we know that this is not our story. This is your story. And I pray that we would not ignore it. I pray that we would not reject it. I pray that we would not try to to live and make it our own, to go our own way rather than following after Christ. God, open our eyes to see our need of Him. I pray that we would hope and we would trust in Him. And that knowing that we're a part of your story would change the way we act about everything. That we would stop trying to live as if this is my world and I'm God. And instead look at it like, this is your story. And I'm a part of it. And how can I bring you glory? God, help us to do that. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.